Praise God. Praise God. Um, if you guys have your Bibles, we're going to be again in Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to end up in Romans chapter 3. So if you want to mark Romans chapter 3 and then flip over to Hebrews, you can do that. We are going to start out in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. I, uh, I absolutely love the book of Hebrews. It may be my favorite book in the Bible. <laughs> I say that about every book, but Hebrews and James have always held a very special place in my heart. And after this past year, Hebrews, especially the first chapter, has began to hold an even more special place in my heart. Um, Many of you guys know this, but for the majority of my life, and especially over the past five years, I've dealt with depression. In the past five years, I dealt with severe depression, even to the point of having suicidal thoughts. Um, But recently... Recently, God broke that off of me. That, that is a testimony in of itself. And he used Hebrews chapter 1 to do it. I always, I, I always want to encourage you, if you're going through a situation in life, open your Bible and beg God to give you a verse to hold on to. The, Bi- the word says of itself that it is a rock that we can stand upon. It says that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. There is nothing that will get you through a difficult season more or better than this word right here. And as I was going through this season, I was really struggling because I hadn't been able to pray the way I used to pray in years past. I hadn't been able to fast. I hadn't been able to study. And over the past five years, at times, it felt like I was coasting. Granted, I would have moments where I felt like I was on the mountain, but then I would have those valley crashes. And I told people, I said it was crazy because I would come here and I would minister and I would pour everything out and everybody would leave encouraged and I would leave discouraged. And everybody might leave joyful and I would leave depressed. And it didn't matter what the day held, I went to bed every single night depressed and sad and broken. That's no way to live your life. That is not what God wants for you and that's not what God wanted for me. And one night, one afternoon rather, I can see exactly where I was at. I was in this little house over here and I was walking through the kitchen and there was a dish in the sink and I stopped to wash the dish in the sink and I just said, God, I said, I used to be able to quote scripture. I used to be able to quote lots of scripture, but I can't anymore. I wish you would bring that back for me. And the Lord spoke to me and said, quote Hebrews chapter 1. I was like, well, that's great, Lord, I can't. Like, that's what, that, didn't you hear me? That's what I'm asking for. I'm asking for you to help bring it back to my mind, and you're telling me to do something I can't do. And again, I felt the Spirit speak to me, quote Hebrews chapter 1. And so I started, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, as in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, by whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he created the world, to being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, set down at the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels. For he hath by an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, for unto which of the angels saith he, at any time, thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. And again, I will be unto him a father, and he shall be unto me a son. And again, when he bringeth the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. But unto the angels, he saith, who maketh his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God 
hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And when I got to that ninth verse, and I said the words, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows, I felt the depression break. I felt it break. I felt it just like I, I imagine everybody in here growing up, you try to break a stick over your knee. You guys know what that's like? Am I the only one that ever broke a stick for a camp? But you break a stick over your knee, and there's so much tension built up in your whole body. But when the, fine, the weak point in the stick finally breaks, you have that release of tension. You hear the crack, and you have the release of tension flow through your whole body. And that's what happened. I felt the break and felt the release of tension. And it wasn't but a nanosecond later, and I began to feel hot oil pour down my back. And I knew that my God was pouring out the oil of gladness upon me. And I, in that moment, the very first word or phrase that came out of my mouth was, for the glory. And that's why, for the past several months, I say it all the time, for the glory. Because it's a reminder to me of what God broke me out of. I love it so much, I even taught my kids how to say it, and then we learned how to say it in sign language, for the glory. <laughs> for the glory. Because that's why he did it. Everything works out for our good and for his glory. Everything. Everything. And our God is a good, good God. He doesn't want to leave us broken. He doesn't want to leave us destitute. He doesn't want to leave us sorrowful and depressed. He doesn't want to leave us kicked to the curb. He doesn't want to leave us busted and disgusted. He wants us to be happy. And he wants us to be healthy. And he wants us to have prosperity. And when I say prosperity, I mean the resources necessary to accomplish his will for our life. He does not want you to go hungry. He does not want you to be spiritually hungry or physically hungry. He wants to take care of you just like he takes care of the sparrows. That is how good our God is. That is how good our God is. And the reason that I'm sharing this with you and the reason that I'm using this as a template to launch into the new year is because I cannot think of anything that the church and the world needs more right now than a baptism in gladness. I cannot think of anything more than the children of God need than to be happy and to be healthy because we are just as broke and just as busted and just as disgusted as the world is and the world looks at us and can't see any difference from a Christian and somebody that's out in the world. We should live a different kind of life. We should know who we are in Jesus. We should walk in that. We should experience that and we should be a light to those that are in darkness. That's what we should be, and that's how we should live our life. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to preach a standalone message on the oil of gladness. And when I got into it, I said, Lord, I guess I'm going to have to preach a series of messages because this is getting bigger and bigger and deeper and deeper. And I'm sure they don't want to listen to me preach for six hours straight. So for your sake, I'm breaking it into smaller sections. Now, Look at verse 9. Is it still up there? Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. I want you to understand something about this verse. It's essentially broken into two sections. This verse is a prophetic promise that the Messiah is going to fulfill. Its central focus is the Messiah. It's what's called a messianic prophecy. Now, I want you to understand something because I'm going to preach this and there are 
fuddy-duddies and people out there, the theological, self-appointed theology police that would say, well, you can't preach that that way. That's about the Messiah. Well, let me, under, let me explain something to you. The Messiah came, Jesus came to be our example. He came to show us how we are supposed to walk in this world filled and empowered with the Spirit of God. The Bible teaches that we are supposed to be conformed to His image. Jesus Himself promises and says, The works that I do, you will do also, and greater works because I go to the Father. And people will twist that verse and say, Well, that's talking about mass communication. Jesus didn't have technology, so He couldn't reach the amount of people that we're talking about. And I'm like, great, if you want to say that that's the greater works portion, fine. But what about the promise that He said, You will do the works that I do? What about that portion? Because that's not mass communication technology. That's healing the sick. That's raising the dead. That's casting out devils. That's cleansing the leper. That's multiplying resources to take care of people. What about those works that Jesus did? Because those are promised to us too. So not only is this a messianic prophecy, but it has what's called dual applicability, meaning that its primary focus is the coming of the Messiah, but its secondary focus is on you. Now, as I said before, this verse is broken down into two parts. The second is contingent upon the first. It's a conditional statement. All prophecy is conditional. All prophecy is conditional. It is, all has an if or a because factor. If you do this, I will do this. If you, if my people, which are called by not my name, shall humble themselves and seek my face, if, or because you have forsaken the covenant and gone whoring after idols, I will send you into bondage or captivity. All prophecy has an if or a because factor. All prophecy is conditional. And this promise is no different. The second part, the anointing with the oil of gladness above thy fellows, is based upon what's accomplished in the first part, and that is the loving righteousness and hating iniquity. The loving righteousness and hating iniquity. Now, I could preach this the way that most people would and be over and done with in 30 minutes. But the reason I'm breaking it down is because I think in the church we don't understand we don't understand what love is, we don't understand what righteousness is, we don't understand what hate is, and we don't understand what iniquity is. And so instead of me just saying, oh, love, righteousness, hate, and iniquity, and take it for granted that everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about, I think it would do us some good to look at what righteousness is, what love is, what hate is, what iniquity is, and then we can get into the promise. This verse would be no different, and it would be no violation of the text if they would have added because at the beginning. If they would have said, because you have hated or loved righteousness and hated iniquity, therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. It is conditional. The fulfillment is conditional on the stipulations being met. Are you guys with me so far? Am I losing you? All right. Go to Romans chapter 3. We are not going to begin with love. That's next week. We're going to begin with righteousness. It's easier to explain what love is and the affections when we learn about what the object of those affections are. Romans chapter 3. We are going to start in verse 9. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. There are other places we could teach on righteousness, but this is my favorite because it lays it out the most simplistically. And I always say, if you can't say something simply, you simply don't know it. 
Verse 9. What then? Are we, meaning Jews, better than they, meaning Gentiles? No, in no wise, for we have before proved that both Jews and Gentiles, they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher or an open grave. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is a wonderful description, isn't it? Man, I'd love for that to be describing me. (laughs) Kidding. I'm kidding. Laugh. It's church. It's not the morgue. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation or a sacrifice through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is the boasting or bragging? It is excluded. By what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith, Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. How many of you guys understood every single word that was just said? (laughs) There's a lot there. I'm not going to take time and just say, well, this word means this and this word means this. Because number one, we're all probably tired. It's New Year's Eve. We got plans. I don't want to give you guys a midday nap. (laughs) I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I don't want to give you a midday nap. Now, you can go into New Year's Eve and into the new year of your own strength and power. I ain't going to help you, (laughs) at least not in that way. What you need to understand is Paul is setting forth a dichotomy, and that's a big word, and it simply means it's a contrast between two trains of thought. He is setting two trains of thought, and then he is comparing and contrasting them one to another. That's what Paul's doing here. It's actually a theme that probably pervades his teaching more than any other theme. And it is the idea of righteousness or right standing with God. Right standing with God by the law or right standing with God by faith. That's what he's setting up. And he tells you right there in the beginning all of those wonderful verses. There's none righteous. No one does good. No one seeks after God. They got poison in their mouth. Deceit is under their tongue. All of those wonderful descriptions that we all would love for people to say about us behind our backs. All of that, all of that is about the righteousness which is by the law. It's the righteousness which is in the flesh. 
What he is doing is he is writing to this group of people, Judaizers or people that sympathize with the old covenant and the law, and he is telling them, this doesn't make you righteous. This doesn't give you right standing with God. Can I confuse you for a second? Can I confuse you for a second? I have permission. People are not sinners because they sin. People are not sinners because they sin. People sin because they are sinners. People do not become sinners because they commit a sin. That's not how it works. In our world, in the natural, in the legal system, we say, well, someone commits a crime, therefore they are a criminal. That is not what happens. Somebody becomes a criminal and then acts out and commits a crime. It's internal first. Jesus himself says it's not what comes or goes into a man that defiles him, but it's what comes out. For out of the heart flows forth murders and idolatries and adulteries and all of these other wicked things. It starts in the heart. People are not sinners because they sin. They, are, they sin because they are sinners. But guess what? Guess what? The opposite is also true. People are not righteous because they do righteous things. People are righteous and then they do righteous things because they are righteous. You are made righteous by faith. You get right standing with God by faith. You believe that God is and that He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. You believe that God came in the flesh and that Christ Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead and you confess Him with your mouth and believe in your heart and you call upon His name. God sends His Holy Spirit and transforms you into someone righteous before you have done anything good or bad. You are made righteous and then you do righteous things because of that transformation. You are not made righteous because you heap up a bunch of right works. One time I had a conversation. There was a lady, she was coming to our church, not this particular church, but a church we pastored in the past, and she was a Buddhist. And she had come to our church week after week after week, and we had multiple conversations about Buddhism. And finally I just sat down with her and I said, Look, I said, how do you think God saves you? How do you think you make it into heaven? And she said, well, I live my life according to a system. And the system that I live my life according to is that I have to do more good works than bad works. To dictate, she believed in reincarnation at the time, and she believed in the reaching the state of nirvana, but she was developing this hodgepodge hybrid of Christianity and Buddhism. And she said, I believe that if my good works outweigh my bad works, then God will find me acceptable and I can make it into heaven. And I said, no, that is not how God works. Let me tell you about another conversation and then we'll tie them together. I had a conversation with an Islamic missionary. We had a three and a half hour conversation in his living room. It was extremely hot and extremely uncomfortable, but he was a great guy, and I wanted to have a conversation because I seen how much God loved this man. And I asked him, they believe Allah has the 99 attributes. And if you ask some Islamic theologians, they'll say 100 attributes, but they believe Allah has the 99 attributes. And he had a poster listing them all out. And I walked up and I pointed to him and I said, it says here that Allah is forgiving. 
He said, yes. I said, but it says here that Allah is just. He said, yes. And I said, and it says here Allah is perfect. And he said, yes. And I said, so you believe God is just, perfect, and forgiving. And he said, yes. And I said, how? How do they not violate one another? And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, he cannot have a perfect system of justice and have a perfect system of forgiveness because the forgiveness would be in violation of the justice or the justice would be in violation of the forgiveness. It has to be one or the other. Is he perfectly just or is he perfectly forgiving? And he said, no, he, can, he just forgives. And I says, how? How does he just forgive? Because that would be in violation of his justice and his perfection if he just swept it under the rug. And he said, I don't, I don't know. And I said, well, let me tell you about what I believe. Let me tell you how our system of faith, let me tell you how Christianity deals with this. We don't just stack up good works and bad works and hope our good works outnumber our bad works. No, because what happens is you still have the bad works that need to be dealt with. God is perfectly just. He cannot forget about the bad works. He cannot forget about the sin because that would be a violation of his justice. He cannot forget about it. He can't sweep it under that proverbial rug. It can't, it's not just open to his discretion. He has to maintain his justice. So what he did was he got up, he put on flesh, he came into this world, he lived a perfect life, and he set up to be our substitution so that all of his wrath and his frustration and his anger against those bad works, against that sin, could be taken out on one person, namely his son, Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity. And there were no more bad works to account for because they were all put on Jesus. Now all that's left is the good works but guess what our good works really aren't good because they have ulterior motives they have hidden motivations they have sin mingled in so those were paid for too because it's not just the outward deeds of the flesh it's the sins of the heart and the sins of the mind and the sins and the emotions and the sins and the reaction and the sins and the responses and the sins in the spirit and so he dealt with those too on the cross and then you know what he did, the best part of all? He took his righteousness, that perfect life that he lived, that merit, that righteousness, that right standing with God, and he took it and he imputed it to us. That's how God can be just and the justifier of those that are ungodly because he makes them godly through Christ Jesus. That's how Christianity does it. It's a perfect system, a system so perfect and so beautiful and so flawless that only God himself could have designed it. And you know how we participate in that? We believe it. That's how we participate in it. We believe it. We believe it. You know how you become righteous? By believing in Christ Jesus and believing that the Spirit of God has made you righteous. That's how you become righteous. And we say that we believe it, but we act in practicality and in the way we conduct our daily life, we don't believe it. You know how many Christians I talk to that say how miserable they are and how lowly they are and how they can't just stop sinning? And then they'll point to scriptures like Romans chapter 7 where Paul says, the things that I would do, I don't do. And the things that I wouldn't do, those things I find myself doing. And he's like, oh my goodness, woe is me, woe is me. I'm in this seesaw back and forth. I want to do good, but I end up doing bad. I don't want to do bad, but I end up doing it anyway. And he gets in this seesaw. And Christians will point to that and say, this is the Christian life. This is how you're supposed to live. And I say, no, 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 no. You don't get to end it there. Paul didn't end it there. You've got to go to the end of the chapter. At the end of Romans 7, he says, Oh, who shall save me from this body of sin and death? I thank my God upon every remembrance of Christ Jesus my Lord. And then he proceeds into the next chapter. He proceeds into the next chapter and he says, 
There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. But after the Spirit, for the law of Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. We are righteous because we believe that we are righteous. We are righteous because we believe it. And then out of that belief flows righteousness. Paul carries this theme constantly. But you know what? <laughs> Let me tell you guys a story. How many of you guys are sick of hearing a COVID? I mean, it's 2023 going into 2024, and that word still pops around constantly. How many of you guys are sick of it? I am sick of hearing the word COVID. If I went my entire life and never heard that word again, I might do a little jump and spin. You know what I'm saying? Like, I can't dance, but you might catch me dancing. If somebody told me, you'll never hear the word COVID again, I'd be like, praise God, hallelujah, for the glory. <laughs> but let me tell you a COVID story. Let me tell you a COVID story. I got COVID when there was actually something to get. I don't know if it was COVID or the flu or what it was, but I got sick. I got the sickest I've ever been in my entire life. I got sick. And Faith got sick. What was funny is I got sick, and for a few days, Faith didn't believe how sick I was. And then she got sick, and she's like, oh, this is bad. And I'm like, thank you for joining the club. <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now, my legs... I've had all kinds of football injuries and basketball injuries. My legs have never hurt as bad as they hurt during that nonsense. I couldn't walk. This was my walk, and I was <laughs> like dragging. That was how I walked. I had to lean on the wall or on a rail or a chair or something. I could. Faith and I, every single day, had conversations about who was going to take who to the emergency room. That's how sick we were. And our conversation always went this way. It was, I'll take you to the emergency room, but you can't drive. No, you're right. You couldn't take care of the kids by yourself. No, you're right. You can't take me to the emergency room. Okay, fine, you take me. I can't drive. I couldn't take care of the kids by myself. And so for two weeks, that was our conversation, day in and day out. And the only reason we ate is because people kept bringing us food. <laughs> and I could push the start button on the microwave, drag it over there, slugging it over there. But I'll never forget, I'll never forget this conversation. She comes down the stairs slithers down the stairs and, and uh, that's the only time I'll ever say the word slither with my wife in the same sentence and not die for it <laughs> she, she slithers down the stairs and uh, she looks at me and she just says I'm annoyed and I was like what? she's like I am mad and I was like okay me too what, who are we mad at? what are we mad for? <laughs> and uh, she said well I am every person I've talked to that had, has gotten COVID, every preacher, every Christian that we've talked to, they tell me these stories. I was sitting in my bedroom and it was like God ripped the ceiling off and I had this manifestation of glory in my bedroom or I was praying and God just opened up the scriptures in a way he never has been or I had this angelic visitation and we had like five, six different testimonies like this and she just looks at me and she says, I haven't got nothing. I haven't got anything. I haven't got a revelation. I haven't got a song. I haven't got a verse. I haven't even got so much as a gold flake speckling in the air. I ain't got nothing. And I was like, well, you know what? I'm mad too. I ain't got nothing either. God, where you at? <laughs> Later that same day, because this is how funny God is. Later that same day, I'm sitting on my couch staring at the wall. Because that's what you do when you're sick. You stare at the wall. <laughs> For hours, apparently. Um, you either sleep or you wake up and take two bites of food and stares off into space till your food gets cold. Uh, but anyway, I was staring at the wall, and crystal clear, I heard the Holy Spirit tell me, 
And when I say I know it was the Holy Spirit, I couldn't formulate a thought, much less a sentence or a phrase. And I heard the Holy Spirit speak to me, and he said this. He said, you never know how works-based your assurance is until you can't work. You never know how works-based your assurance is until you can't work. And for those of you that don't know, assurance is just confidence in your salvation. You never know how works-based your assurance is until you can't work. And I thought about it, and for the week and a half at this point that I had been dealing with this, I had been beating myself up because I couldn't read, because I couldn't study, because I couldn't pray, couldn't fast. I sure as mess couldn't go evangelize to somebody. I couldn't go preach in the church. I was just existing, and I was condemning myself. And I began to realize that my salvation had somewhere along the lines gotten shifted. Somewhere along the lines, I had went from believing that I was made righteous by the grace of God into believing that I had to maintain my righteousness by my work. Somewhere along the lines, it gets shifted. And see, we oftentimes as believers, we're good. How are you saved? I'm a sinner saved by grace. Quit saying that nonsense. If you ever say, I'm a sinner saved by grace, I'm going to rebuke you in the spot. You are not a sinner saved by grace. You are not. You were a sinner, but the moment you got saved by grace, you're now a righteous individual in the family of God. Speak life over yourself, not death. Speak life over yourself, not death. But we will say, I'm saved by the grace of God. How many of you guys believe that? You're saved by the grace of God alone, through faith in Christ alone. and You believe that. But here's what we do in church and in religion. Here's what we do. We believe that we're saved by grace, but we have to maintain it by our good works. It's what we do. We believe we're saved by grace, but now that we're saved, we have to keep our salvation. Come on, how many of you guys have ever thought you could lose your salvation? How many of you ever thought that you could just drop it like your car keys? Like, I do this every once in a while. Where's my, here, we'll do it with my wallet. It's like you're walking along, oh, there goes my salvation. <laughs> like, we're walking, and, oh, I made a mistake, there goes my salvation. And we treat it like we treat our car keys or our billfold. Like, I just, I lose it whimsically. There it was, now it's gone. There it was, now it's gone. That is not how salvation works. If salvation was that cheap, I wouldn't want it anyway. We are saved by grace, and we are kept by grace. Paul picks up on this theme in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been set forth, evidently crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of law or by the hearing of faith. Go to the next verse. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? He that ministers, oh, having you suffered so many things in vain, if it yet be in vain. Go to the next verse. He, therefore, that ministers to you the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of law or by the hearing of faith? You know, even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, that's it. We get into this idea that we have been saved, but now we have to maintain it by our good works. And you know what that does? You know what that does? 
that does the same thing as stepping on a scale every single day. I've said this before. If you want to have anxiety in your life, if you don't have enough stress and enough anxiety, get in the habit of setting a scale in your kitchen and step on it every morning. Seriously. Just take your weight every morning. Check your weight every morning. There is no better way to get anxiety than to pay attention to where, how your body fluctuates. There's no better way to get anxiety. Pay attention to something. Look at your bank account week in and week out, how it fluctuates. <laughs> there is no better way to get anxiety than to pay attention, over-attention, to materialistic things that have no value, that have no spiritual value. There is no better way to get anxiety. And if you get into the habit of where you're trying to measure your good works versus your bad works and see how they stack up, it'll give you spiritual anxiety. And you'll end up sitting there saying, I am a sinner. I'm pathetic. I'm worthless. God can't use me. God can't use me. How can he use somebody that just can't get anything right? You manifest what you fixate on. And if you fixate on sin and you speak that into your life, you are going to manifest that. Don't believe me? Go on a diet and stare at a box of Oreos. Stare at them. You will eat an Oreo. Tell yourself you can't have it. Come on, you guys know like the proverbial kid with the cookie jar. Tell a kid they can't have a cookie and see if by the end of the day they ain't made a concerted effort to get a cookie. <laughs> I'm serious. Because we want the thing that we're told we can't have. And when you pay attention to rules and regulations and religion and not on simple faith in Jesus Christ, you are going to fail. You are going to falter. You are going to stumble. Now don't get me misunderstood. I am not saying that holiness doesn't matter. It absolutely matters. Holiness and righteousness and righteous living, it absolutely matters. Sin absolutely matters. God crucified His Son because of sin. Sin matters. But if you are trying to do it in your own strength, you are going to fail. Jesus says this. He says, you will know them by their fruit. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. I've said this before. I have never once been walking through the woods and heard an apple tree moaning and groaning, stressing on trying to produce an apple. I've never once heard a blueberry bush say, oh, if I could only produce a blueberry. Never heard it. It produces the fruit because that's its nature. If you begin to believe that you are made righteous by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and by faith in Him, you will begin to produce righteous works because of what you believe. You will do it because that's who you are. You do not become righteous by doing righteous things. You do righteous things because the Holy Spirit of God has made you righteous. Yes, you're still going to make mistakes. No, you're not going to be perfect. And that's okay. That's okay. Because when we sin, when we falter, when we fail, we have an advocate with the Father, even one Jesus Christ, who was given as the propitiation for our sin. Propitiation means mediating sacrifice. 
that he stands before God as an intercessor on our behalf so that every time we fall short, we miss the mark, Jesus is standing there interceding or what's a good word for it? Supplicating before the Father on our behalf. You are righteous if you believe in Jesus Christ. He has made you righteous and good works will flow out of that. But if you believe that you have to maintain it, that you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to do this and you get so caught up in what you have to do, you have become self-centered. And you no longer love righteousness, you love the one that you believe is producing the righteousness, namely yourself. It doesn't say you have loved yourself for doing righteousness. It says you have loved righteousness. You have loved righteousness. Not yourself because you are righteous. You have loved righteousness. If you get fixated, you're either going to condemn yourself and beat yourself up because you're not good enough, or you're going to praise yourself and become bound up in pride because you think you are good enough. Either way, it's a misguided notion and an illusion that you've bought into, and both ways make you self-centered. And you're more concerned about you and self than you are about Christ. That's the point of Christianity, is to move you away from being self-centered to move you into being Christ-centered. To move you into being Christ-centered. People will look at this Bible and they say that this is a system of rules and regulations on how to live your life. It is not. That is not. First and foremost, this is the autobiography of God. Second, this is about, because it's his autobiography, this is a treatise on what God has done for you, not what God expects you to do for him. It is first and foremost about what God has done for you. It is more indicative than it is imperative. Indicative means something that's already been accomplished or something that's describing something that's given to you rather than something that you have to accomplish, which would be imperative. The Bible is more indicative than it is imperative. And instead of focusing on what God expects of you, focus on what God has done for you and the natural response, the automatic flow, will be to do what God wants you to do anyway. Because if you focus on righteousness, you will become righteous because of your faith. Final thing, Romans chapter 5. I don't even remember what verse. Remember what verse. We might be ending early today. Praise God. Hallelujah. Everybody said amen. If you didn't, I'll say it for you. Hey. In Romans chapter 5, you're given the comparison again. But this time, it's a comparison between Adam and Christ. The first Adam, which was made and then put into the Garden of Eden, or the second and final Adam, which is Christ. And it basically goes down through and it talks about death flowing. Because of Adam's transgression, death flew from Adam through Moses down into the law. But then it talks about the introduction of the second or the last Adam. And here's what it says. Let's see, where do we want to start? We'll start with verse 16. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For judgment was by one, meaning the first Adam who sinned to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification, meaning that we are justified through Christ because of his purchase and his paying for those offenses. Justification means the same thing as righteousness. 
To be justified is to be pronounced righteous or pronounced in right standing with God. So if you see justification or just or justified, it means the same thing as righteous or righteousness. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Do you see that? The gift of righteousness. We just went through Christmas. How many of you guys worked for your Christmas present? You, how many of you worked for your Christmas present? How many of you got a Christmas present and opened it up and it said, hey, I've got a gift for you, but you need to give me three hours of labor to get it? That wouldn't be a gift, would it? That would be a purchase. That would be a bartering exchange. That's not how gifts work. Gifts are free of charge. So in order for us to get a gift, it means something that we don't do anything for. Something that we don't even deserve. And it says right here that righteousness is a gift. It's something that's given to you. If you had to do good works to get it, it would not be a gift. You are righteous because you believe that you are righteous. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word and for the goodness of your word. Lord, I thank you that you have done something so wonderful and so beautiful that you would not leave me where I was at, that you would not leave me in depravity and sin and misery, but that you loved me, and not just me, but you loved every single person that's ever lived enough to want to sacrifice your son for them, that they might be invited into relationship with you. Lord, I pray right now that if there is anyone in this house that doesn't know what it is to have intimacy with you, that you would invite them into that. That you would invite them through the sacrifice of your son, through the mediation of Jesus Christ, into that place where they could stand up and say, I am made righteous by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I am made righteous by my faith in Christ. And Lord, I thank you first and foremost that it is free that it is a gift because if it required me earning it, I'd never receive it. I'm incapable of earning something so wondrous and so beautiful. So Jesus, right now, I just say thank you. Father, I say thank you. Holy Spirit, I say thank you. Thank you for the work that you've accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys are dismissed. Have a great new year.